Tēnā tātou katoa, nau mai ki te rā a kānohi o kōpapa, kōrangi, up or down. Conversations about how we think about the costs of climate change. We welcome you now to the recordings from the in-person symposium for kōpapa, kōrangi, held at Te Papa Tongarewa in Te Whanganui Ātara, Wellington, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Our host for the day is Marnie Dunlop. In this episode, panellists Elan Noy, Kiri Dell and Mark Baker-Jones discuss how we're currently valuing climate change across our different spheres of decision-making, what we're missing and what change could look like. It's time for our next panel. So as the panellists, um, who I hope are all mic'd up, make their way uh, to the stage, I welcome Kiri, Mark and uh Ilan, please. Thank you. And while they um, come up and, and get themselves settled settled in, I'll, I'll introduce them very briefly. You can check out a more uh, robust bio on uh, on our website, of course. So four questions. I do want to remind you we're using Slido. So please um, put your questions in there. I will ask them uh, towards the end of the, the panel. So today we have Kitty Dell, who is an, an inspirational wahine, uh, hailing from uh, the east coast of Tairawhiti, specifically uh, Ruatoria, and juggles all the things and manages to work on her own whenua, koina te muemuya, that is the dream. Um, a senior lecturer in the University of Auckland uh, Business School, and Kitty is working towards her ultimate goal of progressing Indigenous entrepreneurship and prosperity. Tēnā koe, Kitty. Oh, there we go. We've got too many mics. Oh, am I on my lapel now? Kapai. Just some sound, you know, just some teething issues, Fano, to get us ready for the day. Katapai, it's all good. Okay, Ilan Noi, no Mike, it's Atamida, is one of our New Zealand's leading econ- economic thinkers on adaptation and chair of economics of disasters and climate change at the Victoria uh, Victoria University. Uh, no Mai Ilan. Pakimaki, come on, make the girl warm. And we have Mark Baker-Jones, who has worked extensively as a climate change policy advisor to governments in Australia and as political advisor to our own climate change minister. And he has a climate law background and now has a climate advisory consultancy. Te whakohaere. No mai, Mark. Kia ora koutou, no mai ki te atamira. And has everyone got Slido sorted? Kapai? Cool, sweet. Just so that we can, if you get if you get bored of me, you can ask your own questions. <laughs> um, look, Kapai. Now, many are struggling to uh, reconcile the scale of the climate adaptation challenge with the way our decision makers have to think about costs, which seem to regularly understate the true state of play. Now, while some of this is due to the difficulties of modelling and costing climate impacts, there is also a deeper note regarding how we, as a society, value our history, culture, and natural environment, or tato tayo. Now, speaking of costs, <laughs> you've been developing an indigenous theory of value that uh, you've named manahu. I think that will kind of set us uh, in good stead to understand and, and get our heads into this space. So can you explain this concept, manahu, uh, for us in, in plain terms? Oh, kia ora. Um, well, first, I just want to acknowledge my co-panelists and um, uh, a mihi to you both and um, the expertise and the mātauranga you bring to this space. And also, I'd like to acknowledge Jason Mika, who is a the, one of the lead drivers of this idea around manaho. And manaho is about bringing into the conversation the unseen energies that... Uh, reside um, within our human existence. And these unseen energies are very, they're very explicit in the Māori culture. Um, we acknowledge these concepts such as mana, Māori, wairua, ho. All these unseen energies are entwined with our ideas of economies. So Māori don't just focus on the physical or tangible attributes of our existence, but we also embed uh, these unseen energies. So that's that's what manahau is. It's about bringing that part forward into the conversations of economics. How have those conversations uh, 
been traversing in the spaces in which you are in? There seems to be quite a, a, a lot of appetite. Um, we're always, Jason and I are always getting caught up to talk around manaho from um, government entities and policy makers. So the appetite's pretty high. Mm. Yeah. Appetite high, but in terms of the implementation at that policy level, are we seeing, can you see it be embedded in the way in which, you know, for our, you know, our masauranga and these sorts of concepts, um, how how do you or how do you and Jason ensure that when it is taken or when it is putting being put into place, it's being put into place in the right way? Yeah, that, that, that's a really good question. How do you... Um, how, first of all, how well can our concepts, Māori concepts, travel into other cultures? We have to get a really good and in-depth understanding of that. Some of them travel better than others. Some of our Māori concepts are more suited to our context in te ao Māori, but some of them um, do have uh, high travelability. I think mana is one that does travel very well. Um, and then you need to ensure the safety that the essence of the, that kaupapa is maintained when it travels into another context. And um, I mean, I think there's, there's lots of ways we can think about that, but Māori are the, the, uh, the kaitiaki of those whakaro, that mātauranga. So we always need to be involved when, um, when those concepts are being developed in other cultural contexts. Now, um, a recent Treasury uh, report says somewhat surprisingly, though, that the New Zealand's economy is resilient and well-placed to, to handle climate change. Ilan, I do want to come to you on this. Now, you have been pretty vocal <laughs> um, that our estimates in general, on our estimates in general, the, cost, the costs of climate change are fall far short. So could you just walk us through Treasury's findings and um, your take on their approach? Um, thank you. Thank you, uh, Mani. Um, first of all, I want to acknowledge that I'm an economist, and I apologize for that. Um, so I, um, <laughs> there's a couple of I'm, them in the room. You're on your right. You're not on your own, bro. <laughs> I'm I'm counting numbers, right? So I'm I'm not recognizing a lot of the other values that that need to guide us, uh, but they're only one input into what we need to decide. So whenever we need to make decisions about climate change, this is one aspect that we need to consider. But by no means do I want to imply that this is the only aspect. Um, Treasury came out a few weeks ago with the, with the report on climate change. Um, I think in some ways this was a, a heroic attempt to try and quantify something that we haven't spent enough effort quantifying up till, until now. And we now realize that we don't actually know what is the impact of, um, um, of climate change in New Zealand. To a large extent in the last decade maybe we were looking a lot at climate change and to at the sea level rise and the examination of sea level rise was a bit like looking at the keys under the street light rather than actually where the keys are uh, because sea, um, sea level rise is easy to think about easy to conceptualize easy to model and easy to for forecast um, and extreme weather events are much more difficult um, for, for the scientists to handle. So we ignored them and we focused on sea level rise. And it is actually in, in extreme weather events where the impact of climate change is largely um, manifesting here in New Zealand. And we've seen that tragically this year. Um, so this year, if, you've look, if you look at the past data, um, the sort of incomplete uh, data that we have uh, about insured damages from uh, extreme weather events, um, the last few years of each one of them broken the record uh, in terms of the uh, cost of, uh, again, insured damages. And I'm emphasizing insured here because that's the only number we know. We don't know how much uninsured damages we are incurring every year. Um, not because I think insured damages are more important by all means. Um, but um, this year, 2023, is already three times as high as the worst a year ever that we had in terms of insured damages, already three times higher. Um, so we are looking at an, an acceleration of the cost of extreme weather events that is incredibly um, um, fast and much faster, I think, than what our modeling predicted. And to some extent, the 
the Treasury report and most of our other efforts in the past decade have ignored that that risk. And I think that is the main issue that we need to um, to deal with. And that is extreme weather events and how do we deal with them, how we um, deal with the impacts and how we adapt and prevent them from uh, continuing to expose us this way. Mm-mm. What did you think of um, some of Coco Warner's concepts that she touched on around the frameworks, those three frameworks? Well, unfortunately, we didn't quite get to the the concept of, you know, time, stewardship and and, and connectedness. Yeah. So these are these are all clearly very, very um, important for our um, for our policy decisions in terms of um, of climate change. They're not going to help us in trying to conceptualize what are the current costs already or what the costs are going to be in the uh, in the future. But. In some respect, we also need to think creatively about ways to actually measure things that we are not measuring right now. So I already mentioned um, uh, uninsured costs. Um, We've had discussion this morning about the impact on mental health, for example, uh, from extreme weather events. And that's something that we haven't quantified at all. Um, We haven't quantified at all the cost of very slow recoveries. Uh, that we have been experiencing. So I've, um, one of my colleagues here, Belinda, just showed me, um, noticed yesterday that in the current budget, there is still a line item for um, recovery of Christchurch from the Canterbury earthquakes of 2011. So if we are still spending money on recovery from 2011, then we have a problem um, in terms of making sure our communities recover fast. And we know that slow recovery entails um, mental health um, challenges. So there's a lot of things we need to um, quantify in terms of the connectedness of all these um, systems. And just on that point, Mark, I'll come to you. Have you ever had to try and, and, and put a number on something unquantifiable um, in your your adaptation, Mahi? Thanks for the opportunity to be here and to my fellow panellists. Um, so the work I'm doing at the moment is not so much in the adaptation space, but more around transition risk and disclosure of, of climate-related risk. <clears throat> and so um, for any of you in the room that, that may not be aware or, or may know a little bit about, we have uh, in place for businesses, for some of our, our financial institutions and listed um, corporates, a requirement now that they report annually in their financial filings on the impact of climate change on the or the financial impacts of climate change on the organization, which sounds really complex. And in some ways it is is, is incredibly complex. And this is going to be a long answer. Are we okay if I Don't take a long route to this? But, uh, yeah, I'll cut you off when I need to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, under, under that regime, we've got about 200 organizations in New Zealand and it's all our banks and our insurers and, um, and you know, the entities listed on the stock exchange who um, have to report on the impacts of climate change. And and to support them, we have climate accounting standards, which were developed by the external report we bought, the XRB, to give them support. Um, but what we don't have, unlike um, our sort of regular um, financial accounting um, that we're, we're very familiar with, we don't have that full accounting cycle. We don't have all the procedures and processes uh, and the rules that are necessary in order to carry out that accounting, we just have the standards at the end. And if um, you know, if you if you uh, I expect many accountants, you say, "What's the accounting cycle?" and they can map it out for you. In terms of climate change, when you're doing your filings on the risk, we don't have that accounting cycle. Uh, so what that means is these organisations who are required to report um, are sort of making up this landscape as they go along, and that's incredibly challenging. So at the moment, um, and ultimately what they've got to do is look at all these risks, quantify them, and then cost them. And you know, this is where Elan's sort of work sort of comes into play. At the moment, we're right at the beginning of this process, even though we've got a report um, this financial year, trying to work out what that landscape looks like. So organizations are really struggling. There's a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of expertise going into trying to develop this landscape with the understanding that at the end of it, they've got to cost it. Um, but no idea how to cost it. We can look at the physical risks. We can cost some of those, like you know, if a bridge washes out or infrastructure, we can look at what sort of cost that will be on, on an organization. We can look at, um, at the cost of carbon. So our scope one and two emissions and um, you know, 
and some sort of rudimentary tools around scope three. But what we call the transition risk, where an organization is changing from being heavily reliant on carbon, uh, you know, either as a, you know, it's part of its business or it uses uh, fossil fuels, to getting to a point where it's not reliant on that. So the risk associated with that, we are at a, at a complete loss at how to, how, to, um, how to cost that at the moment. So in, 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 uh, we're, we're looking at a, a bit of a catastrophe on the horizon where everyone's focusing on procedure at the moment, knowing we've got this big issue of costing at the end, um, but have no idea um, what it's gonna look like. When you say catastrophe, I mean, you know, a lot of the language around, you know, what we're facing is, is quite, um, it's, it's very scary. And, and I mean, like, Kitty, I'll come to you on this around, especially on the East Coast and what, what we've just seen with, with Gabriel. When we think about that process of having to get to that point of how we look at that cost, and obviously that the podcast was a good point of, of, on talking about unpacking that uh, with Sean and, and Jen Margaret in that second episode. But Kitty, for the East Coast, it is literally on your doorstep. How is the, the how, how is the community, you know, when we talk at this kind of level, how do you see it kind of trickle down in terms of how that can be tangibly applied into these communities when we're talking about the the cost? What what is that cost? Well, I think the I've actually struggled with the word cost. Um, yeah, yeah, and thinking about yeah climate change in terms of cost and after our cyclone major cyclone um, impacts and devastation into our communities the question now I think we're asking is how should we live or how should we think about living because now we are starting to accept that these um, impacts are coming at us hard and fast we now have to rethink about our energy alternatives how are we going to feed ourselves when we're cut off like islands? Mm. So we are starting to think probably more how our ancestors used to live in more smaller communities, more intimate communities, looking how we're going to grow food to feed smaller communities so that when these impacts happen, um, we are ready for it. So the question we're asking ourselves is how should we now live? Mm. And I, I mean, that speaks very, very much so to that concept of, of, of manahau, as you've already touched on. And you've talked about that economy of mana and, and economic system influenced by that mana enhancing interactions between people, the tile, the environment. Do you see this concept? I mean, when you talk about that, that's literally what you're talking about on the ground. How is that translated on, on a bigger on a bigger scale um, across Aotearoa? So I, I think you're starting to touch on the point that um, a lot of the way we've been conceiving or perceiving of climate change has been quite fear-based. Um, yeah, these things are happening to us. They're coming at us. We're almost victims of it. And I just started having some very kind of general loose thoughts this morning about that. And for Māori, that fear-based, you know, the word might be matakuve. And what is the opposite or the flip of that? Well, it's it's probably mana. Mm. What is a mana approach to dealing with impacts that are coming at you? Um, and so I think that's something we might be able to think about and tease out a bit more in our conversations. Yeah, and I do. I want to come back to you, Mark, and then I'll come to you around, um, you know, Kitty's point of, of kind of, as Māori especially, you know, reconciling with, that word cost in this particular context. Can we flip that? Can we re, you know, make the narrative, you know, just totally flip that narrative of, of cost? Because I think that's where people kind of hit a wall a little bit, right? Absolutely. Kitty, you're so spot on. Like for even with the organisations that we deal with, if we talk about risk all the time, it's like um, saying there's a catastrophe on the horizon. Like we always look at it and say that you, it's an opportunity. It only becomes a risk if you leave it too late. So the conversation we're having, even though organizations have to report on their, the financial risk from, from climate change, if you only talk about risk, organizations just get mired in, in fear and they end up just pushing the problem away because it becomes too complex. But exactly as you say, Kitty, if you start talking about the positives, about the money, about, um, about uh, what we're trying to do is to realize an opportunity that completely changes organization. And I'll give you an example. So. 
um, we had um, we, we we had a discussion group of a, uh, a group of general counsel from some of our, our biggest organisations the other day, and one of them said, "I'm having such a battle because reporting on climate change um, is really uh, within the organisation. It's really disrupting us, and so." Um, if you understand what we're trying to do through reporting on climate change, we're actually trying to avoid financial instability because we've got a risk sitting there. It's not a, it's not a, a fictitious risk. It's a risk sitting there. If you don't recognize it and you do, don't do something about it, as an organization, it will cause instability. And the longer you leave it, the, more, the greater that instability. So if you recognize it and act on it, you're actually mitigating the instability of your organization. And changing that conversation around for an organization who at that point was saying, oh, this is such a hassle. We've got so much on our plate to go. Uh, actually, if we do this, we're going to be better off as an organization. It's that empowerment. And then they really embrace this process and they see what it is they, and they take advantage of those opportunities. So absolutely, I think, and this is probably a couple who understand this from being in the military, is that you know, when the military, on the movies I see, they go in and they say hearts and minds you know, is what you're trying to do. And I think one of the biggest problems we have with climate change is we haven't captured the hearts and minds of the people effectively to mobilize them to respond to climate change. All we've done is talked about the fear and the issues and you know how bad it is. Uh, and so we've sort of turned everyone off. Mm. So I think if we are, like my, my big philosophy on this, if we are to make progress and we, uh, and we, we, and we are, are to sort of do it in time, we've got to change that conversation. We've got to look at those concepts of you know, that are universal through becoming universal through the climate change language, understand what they mean and use those positive aspects to um, to, to to move. So absolutely, it has to flip. Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, the idea of mana is, is you have agency, mm. that you are empowered to act. So um, I do think there's something there for us to explore um, with regards to responding to climate change. Mm. You know your, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm I'm an academic, um, and I see my role as a. As You've a, not yet to keep it. <laughs> so I'm not about inspiring people. Um, I'm about researching, um, and maybe also because I'm Jewish, I'm a bit sort of a pessimist. Um, so um, I, I understand the the argument, but I I also think we need to highlight that there are very significant costs and very significant impacts. Um, we don't need doomsday language, and I think, for example, the the organization Extinction Rebellion is doing very good things. But the name Extinction implies, um, you know, something terrifying, and I don't think we are looking at climate change causing extinction um, of us as a human species, although it, it is causing extinctions for a lot of other species. Um, but but I think. Yes, we need to we need to be inspirational and we need to be positive. But we what the, but we also need to acknowledge the fact that if we are causing businesses disruption, that's exactly what we want to cause. We want to you know stop business as usual, uh, and and change, not yes yes. Um, but maybe disruption generates behavioral change. I don't know, but um, but I think we need to. Um, yes, we need we need to make sure that we we convey the message that we can. Um, climb out of the hole we've dug ourselves into in the last hundred or so years, but it, it, is, it does entail um, significant pain, and I think sometimes we don't acknowledge that there is significant pain involved. I'm going to give you an example. Um, we have a cost of living uh, crisis in, in New Zealand, so one thing the government did is uh, relax the ETS rules so that, um, that the cost of uh, emission trading units uh, dropped down from $90 a, a ton to $51 a ton as of this morning. Uh, that's very unfortunate. Um, yes, you know, if we had still been at $90 a ton, that would have entailed some some uh, challenges in terms of cost of living, but we should have dealt that not by uh, relaxing our emission targets, but rather with, with other uh, tools. And Treasury and the government has plenty of other tools to assist with the cost of living crisis. So, so I think we still need to acknowledge the fact that this is a major crisis and we need to be um, proactive about it. Mm. Yeah, Krieger. Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting... Um, uh, yeah, what is the role of fear in disrupting behaviours? And um, I'm, I'm not quite sure about that, but um, 
what I am interested in is how we go about experiencing what is happening to us um, in climate change um, and acknowledging that there's lots of big numbers involved. <laughs> how do you strike that balance? Um, I, I think it's not sugarcoating. Like, absolutely, you've got to acknowledge the consequences of, of, um, of our current and previous actions and what that means if we don't act quickly on this. And, and there's a lot of built-in consequences already, those negative things. But um, and so I, I, don't, I don't believe we should sugarcoat it. But uh, that's not the solution, just telling that story. The solution is what are all the actions that we're going to take now to, you know, what are those behavioral changes that we're going to go through now to find a solution? So um, I think, you know, absolutely be aware. Uh, but the balance, um, look, if you don't know that climate change is heading, is putting us in such a, you know, we're sort of heading towards disaster. If you don't know that already, I don't think you're ever going to get that. But, but we all do. We all do that. The, the thing we've got to do is understand what in our lives, like what can we do or what do we do as a, no, as a globally, in order to um, find a solution to that, so I'm saying putting that's where the focus should be. Mm -hmm. So, it's, so maybe it's a shift of conversation. Maybe we've just reached a point of maturity now where we go, yeah, absolutely, we get this, um, but we've we realise we have to do something. We have to act upon it. Given your work though, in, in you know policy, I mean law and policy in this space, what big shifts can you actually see working? Um, because, you know, we're talking about these kind of two quite two things that are on the same spectrum, right? You know, the literal cost and then the impact, right? If we want to think about that as a, as a spectrum. But what, are we, what, are we, what will work if we, we want to have those shifts happen and those paradigm shifts happen through the, lever, the levers such as law and policy? So, um, so I think we've, we've got great policy frameworks um, already a, a great policy framework in New Zealand at the moment. Um, it will always have to change and evolve and develop. And if you look at what Australia is doing now, like they're rapidly, they've, they've learned from us and they're introducing policies that we hadn't really thought of, but are, are sort of the next step on. When we developed a lot of our policy framework here, we were looking at the UK and the EU and seeing what they're doing. And we built a lot, and there's some contextualizing for, local, for the local environment, but it, it's progressive. But the, the principles in that are really good. The failing is in... Um, implementation of those policy because they all rely on decisions of you know our our key decision makers our our politicians and um, you know our, and our businesses and not blaming the politicians because politicians are put in place to represent the people that put them in yeah but if you look at their role they're are there they're there getting votes so I mean they are that sort of how these decisions are manifesting but they're not the sole source of that decision making it sort of comes back to all of us to to say you know, it's unacceptable that that government in November last year um, didn't uh, acted in a way that kept that price down of the ETS because on on a you know on the false premise that it was going to impact on on households in some detrimental way if they did. And we we clearly know it wouldn't have. It would have some impact, but it would be negligible. But that's a political statement that's coming through, and I use that in the in the crude term, rather than a truly economic um, output from that. So. Um, we have to be not tolerate that sort of behaviour from our decision makers. We've given them mandate by putting them in there and giving them um, support through um, uh, through responses to the policy when it was put out for, con for when they put out for consultation. Now we have to hold them to account to uh, to to drive hard on that. And and I don't think we're doing that. I think we're you know we're we're probably all uh, to some degree not um, demanding enough of our of our, our politicians in that. Mm -mm. Yeah, 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 Elon, go. Something. Um, that specific decision about the the ATS, I think it's hard to explain that as as a way to garner votes because the vast majority of voters in New Zealand have no idea what the price of the ATS is or what is even the ATS. Um, I think we're talking about small interest groups that have been lobbying the government and have have got that um, go through. So I think I'm a bit more cynical there. Again, maybe my role as an academic is to be a bit cynical. See, on the use of the word um, household, you know, that, 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 that uh, it's, it's not fair on households. We're in a cost of living crisis. And it, to, to my, my, the way I saw it was government saying, you know, we're actually out there to look after the households. We realize we're in economic crisis and we'll take this action, even though they don't understand the connection between the two. But they could have equally said something else and we're taking that action. Like, you know, in the US, they did a 
very aggressive um, climate change bill and called it the Inflation Reduction Act mm. um, in some jiu-jitsu of, of language. Um, so um, we can, you know, we well, we, be a bit more creative about that than, yeah, rather than actually shoot ourselves in the foot with, yeah. um, with the decrease in, in, in the ATS. Um, I also want to um, add something else in this discussion. So we are definitely moving in the right direction in the sense that we are much more acknowledging the, the problem. So the budget that came out yesterday mentions the word climate change 81 times in a, in a document of 150 pages or something like that. So that's quite impressive. Um, on the other hand, it also includes a, a funding for uh, Westport um, stop banks. Um, and maybe worryingly says that the um, spending on stop banks in, in West, uh, Westport could be an, an example for future adaptation in other communities around New Zealand. And I think anyone who has looked at Westport knows that this is an unsustainable uh, policy decision. So we are not quite putting the money where our mouth is at this at this point in time. And, and yes, we are talking the talk a lot more than we have before, but we're not quite um, spending in the right directions, I think. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Kitty, when, when Mark said, you know, we do have these great policy frameworks, it took quite a long time, though, for the government to actually incorporate a Māori at that table in, in, a, in a meaningful way. Um, and then, you know, with the appointment of the Rupu, um last year um, <clears throat> with, with Mike and, and Dale at the helm. Um, sorry, Mike Smith and, and Dale Takatimu. But do you think that um, our policy frameworks are fit for purpose for, for, for Māori, for our Māori communities? So I'm not heavily involved in the climate change space yeah. in terms of um, understanding the policies that are being put out there. Um, analysing the literature or research, uh, and I told the organisers this. <laughs> um, but I consider myself more as a receiver as w of what is happening, of the narratives that are coming at us. So, um, yeah, I think m my perspective is really in the small community perspective. Yeah, if we want that perspective. Yeah, how do, how do we now think about conducting ourselves amidst all this chaos and how do we maintain our mana, our strength, our um, dignity um, to live mm. um, with these oncoming impacts. Mm, mm. I might go to Slido for some for some parts I um, before we wrap up I'll just grab um, save paper and things like that but amazing amazing corridor. Um, and stop apologising for being an academic. It's okay. It's all right. There's lots of lots of views in here. <laughs> um, so in terms of some of our parts, I hope you guys have been getting a max. Okay, first part, though, um, it's not to anyone in particular. How can the government take into account long-term cost of climate change in their short-term policy interventions? Mark, I might come to you on that one. Um, so the question is, is a, is a question that um, government has short-term goals, but this is a long-term issue. Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. Is, is the government take into account long-term cost of climate change in their short-term policy interventions? Yeah, so I think there was an attempt to do this, and kudos to James Shaw for getting all this work through, where um, setting up this policy framework, and, and just on that point, it, it's not perfect and it needs to evolve. And in, in terms of um, Māori participating, you know, when we have, when we're using terms like... Um, you know, kaitiakitanga, or uh, uh, you know, these are these have particular nuances and meanings that you just can't take that word and then say, you know, oh, we're just yeah. going to use it. What we're doing is we're kaitiaki, you know, and you said it on the airplane when you come down here, come up here, you know, you just can't take that term and then and make it mean something. So it's really important, I think, if we're going to adopt this way of thinking, then we have to adopt the people into the decision at the table who think this way, who know who know how to wield these tools, and. That's been a massive failing, and not just in climate change. It's been a failing in New Zealand policy forever. Mm. It's a failing to do that, um, and you know, issues with co-governance, all that misunderstanding of what those relationships and things are, are, are all part of that. But the, the the policy framework was set up with a view to um, sort of longevity of those policies. So, and and I call it a framework because the idea was that the the real decision making should lie outside of government, like. And I, by framing that, but like the Climate Change Commission, for example, was appointed to do the hard work and to provide advice to government. Uh, so government didn't really have to make the decision. 
Um, I think where the failing has occurred and why we're seeing that short-termism is that the government is not accepting fully that advice from the Climate Change Commission. And it's, again, putting that sort of the twist on it, whatever the intention is there. So that's where the failing is occurring. But the framework itself is designed to be longer term. The difficulty is how do you lock in that sort of long-term thinking and bind government like we... we you know, we, we don't allow that. Doesn't want to be doesn't doesn't want to be holden to its predecessors. It should be free to make its decisions, appropriate decisions at the time. So, uh, so that's a real challenge. But again, I think it's sort of there is that ability for that long term thinking, that long term, um, uh, you know, addressing climate change. But um, there's the short term thinkers, decision makers fall into the mm. way. Mm. Um, a part I hear for, for Kitty from from Tamitha Portinakwe, councillor. Um, how do we take Kitty's concept of mana being about agency and the power to act without it becoming about individual responsibility slash personal carbon footprint? Yeah, interesting actually. Um, so the question is asking how um, we don't let, say, government off the hook by taking our own futures into our own hands. Is that kind of the terms? <laughs> uh, I think we need policies um, or strategies that are going to support small communities to be resilient, uh, especially around alternative energies and food and food resilience. So they still have a role to play, but our communities can uh, engage their own agency to make that happen for themselves. Mm. Um. Mark, Hatai, for you here, you've worked with, with ministers who are grappling with these decisions. How do we hold them to account with these decisions, as you've said? Uh, just voting, turning up to the polls and voting. That, that, that's the real way. And being vocal. Like the, the zero carbon bill, um, the reason that got through, and, and, and I don't think I'm sort of speaking out of school, but there was a lot of negotiation within government and with all the parties about that bill. And um, it was far more progressive than some wanted and far less progressive than others wanted. But that's the sort of, that's the political process. But the reason that bill really got through was because of um, Climate Leaders Coalition. So businesses coming to government and saying, we don't, not we don't care, but we, you know, we have, we know climate change is an issue. You need to make a decision and provide us long-term certainty so we can make decisions for our businesses, you know, investment decisions or whatever where we're going to operate. So businesses were really important. And, you know, you can call it lobbying or whatever you want, but it was that, that massive influence on the government there. And it was a hugely influential on the National Party and New Zealand First, who, you know, could have just opposed that, but recognised that because the businesses, because their voters are behind it, they would be foolish not to support it. And the other, the other really important one was the um, students mm. striking, the marches. Like, they were huge impact. Because they were so, they were so um, like reputationally, government had to look at, listen to the young. Um, they made so much noise. Uh, there was so much energy there that that was the sort of the, the, the outward side, the pressure from the public on government to push that through and to take the lead on that. So, you know, you can hold them into account by voting, but you're also throughout the term, you know, you've got to keep it, your, your, your members, you've got to keep pushing them. And in a coordinated way, you know, and you work in government and many of you do here or some of you do here, you know, you can see how one very loud voice can have a really big impact mm. uh, on, on any of these issues. Mm. Ilan, for you, is the cost relative to inaction rather than the status quo? So the, the cost is the cost we are experiencing right now because of our past behaviour, Right. Uh, what we can do now is change the future costs. We can't change the costs we're experiencing now, and we're not going to be able to change the um, the kind of extreme weather we are going to be experiencing in the next few years. But we can we can globally together change the um, the, the 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 cost of uh, weather 10, 20, um, 20 years from now. Uh, but what we can do is is adapt right now so that those costs are less impactful on our, on our communities. Um, even in, in even in the uh, very near future, um, not by building stop banks in Westport, but doing something a bit more um, uh, more far sighted than that. And that sort of that that issue of far sightedness versus the short sightedness of of governments. We have to acknowledge the fact that we have a three year cycle for government, 
uh, which means that we have an unusually short short term uh, thinking in 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 government here. Um, we do have examples of other places where we have established mechanisms to account for that. So we have the Reserve Bank, for example, which is um, you know independent and sets policy without looking at these short term uh, considerations. We have the Climate Change Commission, and we have, I think, at least two commissioners sitting in the audience here. Um, they don't have the same power that the Reserve Bank um, has, and maybe they should have a little bit more um, more power to to call government to account. Um, there might be good reasons not to actually, you know, have have James set all policy in New Zealand, but um, <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but still, I think we need to we need to acknowledge that you know the Climate Change Commission gave some advice. The government chose to ignore it with very little implications. Um, so we need to be, and and part of that process is to to force voters to um, to call them to account. But that doesn't quite always work the way we want it to. So we need to put other mechanisms in place as, as well. When we were developing that policy, like the idea behind providing the climate change mission with the power to provide that fight, we honestly naively thought that if the government went against that, people would be they would in uproar and people would be upset and go, why? Are, why is the government, you know, not taking the advice of an independent, informed body? Um, and it hardly got any coverage, you know. So again, you know, we're, we're all at fault here. Mm. And just just on that, there's a, there's a part I hear as well for you, Mark. Do you see banks and corporates being motivated by anything other than financial risk and penalties? And are you seeing a more genuine shift on that? Yeah, so um, the, the reason um, businesses and financial institutions are, responding to climate change generally. And remember, that there are corporate entities. There's, there's probably three things. One is that, like the board or the, the executive, think that they've got a moral duty or, you know, or a corporate responsibility to do something about it. And we certainly absolutely see that. And some of our New Zealand organisations have been held up internationally as exemplars in that space. Um, the other ones are the ones that are under the mandatory regime are required to report. And some of the organisations see that as just a compliance exercise. They completely miss... Uh, misunderstand the process, but they see it as a compliance exercise. Um, but most of them are, we see are moving are driven by their shareholders. So, or not shareholders, stakeholders, much broader than their shareholders. So, um, I think you know they're just people. Um, and as new generations come through, we're seeing far more women on boards, far more younger people get making their way through to boards now. And absolutely, there's a big shift in the way that organisations are trying to address climate change, but they've got constraints too. You know, they, you can't as a director just say, like, we're going to go full out and we're going to prioritise everything climate change in and not focus on our profits. You know, our, our legislation doesn't enable them to do that. And, uh, and there are legal issues aligned with that. Um, but I think since we've done things like mandatory reporter regimes, have emissions trading schemes in there and made money a centre point of it, it's really caught the attention of financial institutions and corporates and it's got them thinking. So that's made a behavioural change in itself. And I think there's momentum uh, has developed from that. Mm. Um Kitty, we'll have a couple more parts and then we'll, we'll wrap up. But Kitty, well, you, you've already kind of touched on this, but I, I do want to give you an opportunity to kind of, um, but, I mean, yeah, open it up a bit more. It's, how do we as a society move away from the purely economic framing of climate response towards what is actually valuable? Um, okay, good question. <laughs> I mean... How we value things is often uh, is actually tied to our paradigm, and the paradigm that we are operating from is often the one we're given at birth by our parents and society. So we don't choose or opt into our paradigms. They're they're ones that we're immersed in um, from birth. So to change a paradigm is actually really, really hard and changing paradigms are painful. They hurt because you're trying to reconstruct, deconstruct um, all the teachings and neuro pathways that have been formed. So my advice, I think, on that question is to embrace tao Māori <laughs> and let that paradigm flow through you um, to change your value system. Because it can't, I mean, you know, like you talked to kind of about that fear before, Mark, around, especially politically, but I do see in, in, in the public sector as well, we do see that these Māori concepts, although, you know, making sure they're looked after, but when they are 
like they do apply they can apply to everybody do you think that there is there, there is people becoming more open to that non maori are becoming more open to that um do you think we're going to because all of this sort of stuff becomes a political football especially in an election year and we've become so far do you fear that we will kind of had a bit of a wall of how much that will be taken on in terms of incorporating um, our paradigms, our Māori paradigms? So um, we also need to be careful that we don't over-romanticise yeah. um, te ao Māori and Māori concepts and that um, yeah, we don't get into a love affair with it and um, don't engage in reality. Um, so... Um, where was I going with that? What was the question? Right. The question was, yeah, how do we make sure that people are, are open to uh, looking and doing things in a Māori way while taking in Māori concepts, you know, our paradigms, Māori paradigms, as you said, to be open to that in order to shift how we think about what we value. And in a, in a year where it is used, you know, race-based politics, it's used to um, to spark fear and stop people from being open to those particular concepts and understanding that from a Māori worldview. Are you worried that all of that progress that we are making is going to stop or do you, do you see us going in that direction? Uh, um, I, I see us. We're going in that direction. Definitely as a nation, we are heading into a, let's call it a paradigm merge okay. at this stage. Hey, better than um, a media merger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and all of that reaction is that overreaction is going to let's say die off um, I, I study this quite a bit mm. how paradigms change I've looked at the um, I guess the push and pull factors of New Zealand's paradigm twist I call it um, and the push factors are ones like compliance um, regulation, law, those are the push factors that help to change a paradigm. For example, the word kaitiaki, which first entered into our, let's say, discourse with the Resource Management Act in the 90s. Now that piece of legislation helped to disperse the word kaitiaki across the nation um, into the everyday homes of um, New Zealanders. So that's a push factor. It was pushed that paradigm concept was pushed down onto us. Then um, I look at pull factors. These are the things that we, we, we pull these concepts into our lives because we can see they're going to give us a benefit or an advantage or an opportunity. Uh, so we're seeing a lot more of the pulling of Māori concepts into organisations, by individuals, by families, by communities, um, to gain that advantage or opportunity from Māori concepts. So I look at those, how those push and pull factors dance around with each other, how they're iterative and, yeah. Oh, darling. Well, we've come to the end of, of, of this panel, but I do, before we wrap up, I do want to just throw to each of you to give something, either a partai, a question, or something that you want people to think about or take away um, from from your, your corridor. Um, no pressure, Mark, I'll start with you. <laughs> um, I guess sort of harking back to what I've said, like how serious are we about dealing with this issue? Um, and if you're really serious and you will, that behavioural change will start with you and not just pay lip service, like there's a cost to doing this, but you, you've got to really look at it and say, am I, you know, am I re relying on someone else to do this or am I going to do something about it? And, 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 and we measure everything like in real emissions reductions. If it's not going to achieve an emissions reduction in the real economy, then I would say that you're just kidding yourself. Like, if you're serious about this, everything you need to do is focused on achieving those real emissions reductions. And what rako were you and why? Good. What rako were you and why? What show? Hey, you um, uh, it's a long story back to my childhood. Oh, cool. I went for it. Okay, yeah. cool. Okay, yeah. yeah. Not the, the rako thing at the end, but the, you know, the inspirational <laughs> quote now. <laughs> Um, I think I'd like to leave everyone with a bit of a scenario, I guess. So I always think about, um, I live on a valley, it's about 14 kilometres long, and I think what will happen, how will we live, how will we survive if this valley is cut off? And um, we, I use that scenario to help think about how we will feed ourselves, how we will live, how we will survive, what we should be growing, 
how we should be living in relation to each other. And so I guess I challenge you to think about your scenario. What happens if your environment is cut off? Nothing's getting in and um, nothing can get out. How will you survive? How will you live? What will life look like for you? Um, yeah, so that's my scenario challenge I leave with you. And my tree is Kanuka. Did anyone else choose the Kanuka? Oh, you're cheating your tree to hunt. Don't in that. Oh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I've got two fellow um, companions, Kanuka companions. We've got some big um, commercial products coming out of our valley um, for Kanuka. So wait for that media release. Oh, Ilan. <laughs> yeah, we talked a lot about the, the Maori worldview and how that can um, contribute to us. I'm I'm a visitor here. I'm you know you've seen you've heard my foreign accent. Um, I'm in in Judaism. We have a, a, I think a similar worldview that doesn't conflict at all with the, with the Maori worldview. And and one of our principal uh, principles uh, principal ideas is tikkun olam, um, which translates into fixing the world. Um, and I think we have a duty to to fix the world. In this case, uh, what I see the problem is it doesn't, you know, it's not a Maori worldview versus sort of a Judeo-Christian worldview because, you know, at least in my tradition, there is a there is an equivalent. The problem we had was created recently in the way we structured our economies in the last fifty or so years, and 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 that is, um, it's it's achievable to fix it. Um, I don't think that we need to. Um, be despairing about it. We can fix it, and we can make sure that the costs of climate change are as low as as we can make them, and we adapt to it. and And we make sure that our grandchildren—I don't have one uh, any yet—but I'm putting pressure on my kids um, um, uh, that we make sure that our grandchildren um, are are going to be in a in a world in which we haven't destroyed the environment. And I think that's perfectly achievable. Stunning. And your tree and why? Uh, my tree was uh, Putakawa because this morning uh, there were five kaka birds on the um, Putakawa uh, just outside my house and I live in Mount Vic. So that's a success for Zealandia for in reintroducing kakas um, into Wellington, yeah. which I really liked. And yeah. That's my treat. Oh, stunning. Oh, well, Nathan Mihikiakoto, thank you so much um, for your amazing corridor um, and those beautiful insights. Uh, Nathan Mihikiakoto. Kopapa Korangi is brought to you by the team at Deep South Challenge Alex Keeble, Kate Turner, Maximilian Scott Murray, and Sally Owen. Our music was generously gifted to this project by Deep South Challenger's Pautikana Ruia Apirahama and his brother Rania, and comes from the album Fare Māori. Additional music is from Woodcut. Ngamahinui kia koutou katoa to all of those who gave us their time and expertise for this series.